Greetings and welcome to this edition of Peter's Field Hospital, the official podcast for the website wherepeteris.com. My name is Mike Lewis and I'm the managing editor. Today I am joined by two guests, Nate Tinner Williams and Dawn Eden Goldstein. Dawn Eden Goldstein is a theologian and the author of several books, including The Thrill of the Chaste and My Peace I Give You, Healing Sexual Wounds with the Help of the Saints. She has taught at seminaries in the U.S., England, and India. Currently, she is writing a biography of the Jesuit priest Edward Dowling, who is a spiritual advisor to Alcoholics Anonymous founder Bill Wilson. Nate Tinner Williams is a millennial Catholic with a passion for theology and history. He has a degree in theology and loves to engage in the new evangelization through the internet. A lifelong Christian and newborn Catholic, he is always looking to discover just how deep and wide the church truly is. So, uh, Nate and Don, both of you are first-time contributors to our podcast, and both of you are relatively new contributors to where Peter is. Nate, you started shortly after you were received into the Catholic faith in December. You wrote a piece for us. And Dawn, your first piece was on Monday. So glad to have both of you. Both of you are converts to the Catholic faith. Dawn, coming from Judaism through uh, evangelical Christianity, is that correct? And you came into the and church... Also, and also through through agnosticism before being evangelical. I was right. a Jewish and then agnostic and then evangelical and finally Catholic. So Dawn, uh, you live in Washington, D.C., and you have been taking part in the Black Lives Matter protests, along with a number of other Catholics. How does your faith inform your actions during this moment? And what do you think the Catholic Church can do to help eliminate racism? Well, Mike, the Catholic Church has, since the 60s, really, uh, been at the forefront of calls for civil rights. Uh, that was a priority of the Second Vatican Council. It's in Gaudium et Spes, a, 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 an explicit condemnation of racism. And uh, certainly many of the martyrs of the civil rights era and others who raised their voices against racism have been Catholics. Dorothy Day is a wonderful example, but also another servant of God whose cause is for canonization, uh, Sister Thea Bowman, and many canonized saints who in some way either uh, suffered racism, such as St. Martin de Porras, or uh, who actively took a stand against racism. I'm thinking of St. Catherine Drexel. So for me to participate in these protests in the wake of George Floyd's death is to really express my, express the gospel. It's an expression of my Catholic faith to side with those who are oppressed, who are vulnerable. Uh, one thing I've noticed on Catholic social media is that many Catholics are unfortunately inflamed by pictures of me holding a sign saying Black Lives Matter or there were a few days when I put Black Lives Matter as part of my Twitter handle because Twitter allows one to add 
other words to one's name. So my name said Dawn Eden Goldstein, Black Lives Matter. Many people were offended by this, and they would send me a link to the website for the organization called Black Lives Matter as a kind of gotcha argument. You know, ha ha, you are saying Black Lives Matter, and now you have aligned yourself with an organization that has these Marxist or whatever goals. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm quoting them uh, because they cite language of Black Lives Matter that is quote-unquote queer affirming, or that questions the nuclear family. And my response is that just because an organization that I may not always agree with is saying Black Lives Matter doesn't mean that I shouldn't say Black Lives Matter. And, you know, perhaps if Catholics were at the forefront of this movement, then it would force other uh, organizations in the movement to take a clearer look at Catholic social teaching. But it's because we as Catholics have conceded the field to these other organizations that they're able to lump in things that are not Catholic. But in in any case, if there were some organization calling itself Jesus is Lord, I wouldn't stop saying Jesus is Lord. It's the truth. Yes, absolutely. Turning to Nate. Nate, I think it would be interesting for some of our listeners to hear a little bit of your background. You've been Catholic for less than a year, and I got to know you originally from your tweets and and from some of your writing. One of the things that struck me in your writing was that as an African-American young man, you grew up not realizing that there actually were Black Catholics out there, and especially in this country. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about your journey and about what it meant to you as an African-American to learn about the faith and the potential for the Catholic faith to be a force against racism and a force for social justice and for good. Growing up in the Black Christian tradition, there was a lot that I didn't know. It was a lot that I wasn't exposed to. Most of Catholicism I was not exposed to. And most of uh, church history I was not exposed to. And within the past year and a half, I've definitely taken on a lot of new information, some of which has caused me to convert to Catholicism, some of which has caused me to reconnect with my cultural roots as a Black person, and also that has caused me to review American history and the things that I was taught and not only just find the true version of events, but also how that intersects with my newfound faith. And part of the reason I converted to Catholicism was actually because of the church's intersection with Black history, which wasn't always a positive intersection, but in many ways was, in fact, in some ways, revolutionary. There were things the Catholic Church was doing before anyone else And there are certain things that the Catholic Church was late to the game on. But the fact that I could find in Catholicism a Black Catholicism was a a major reason why I decided to convert, because I was trying to decide between Eastern Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism. And Eastern Orthodoxy has really no historical connection with the African-American story, whereas Catholicism intersects quite a bit. But uh, 
yeah, I think just from what we see in history, obviously the church has shown itself to be a, a force for justice. And I think that in this moment, it can continue to be that and maybe find that tradition anew, which would be an awesome thing to see. We find ourselves at a very odd moment in history, a very polarized moment in U.S. history. Where the culture goes, it seems that's where the church tends to go. You speak very well about the church's teachings regarding social justice and racial justice. One of the things that we've certainly encountered has been a lot of Catholics exhibit attitudes that, that seem to align with their, with their ideological preferences rather than with the core of what, of what our faith teaches. As an African-American, have you encountered that yourself? And, and how deep do you think the problem runs in the U.S. Catholic Church, based on your experience? If I can answer the second question first, it seems to run deeper than most people would like to admit. And when you read about Black Catholic history, that's kind of the theme, is that the church follows the culture, even in those ways that the culture is obviously wrong and repressive. And so while the church was maybe teaching slaves before anyone else was, they were teaching them in a segregated manner and refusing to allow Black people to be ordained to the priesthood and things like that. Things were which things which were not controversial at all in American culture at large, because America was founded by by and large by racist people and contained quite a few racist people for much of its history. And that was just reflected in the church for one reason or another. And so I think we are still in the process of peeling back a lot of that uh, a lot of that growth, which unfortunately was growth that came about with racist tendencies. So we're now trying to undo that bit by bit. But the work is not done, obviously, which is why you can still look around and see people saying extremely problematic things, even in a time like this, even from leadership positions within the church. Now, Don, I think a lot of what you said is reflected in, in Nate's comments uh, regarding the state of the church right now. You, you talk about the reaction that some people have given you on social media for standing up for racial justice. What is your reaction to what, to what Nate just said regarding how far we have to go and what reforms are needed in the Catholic Church in order to eliminate racism from our ranks? Well, I certainly agree with everything that Nate just said, and he has studied the African-American Catholic experience much uh, more deeply than I have. My experience of studying it has been more studying the success stories in terms of studying those people who were active in changing things in the United States. So from that perspective, I have perhaps, I don't want to quite say Pollyanna-ish, but I have perhaps a rosier picture of things from studying the good people and not studying the bad people. But just to, 
I don't want to say balance things out because I don't think that Nate gave an unbalanced view, but just to mention a few of the success stories. If one were to look up the very last act of Pius XII in his papacy, it was a cable sent by the Holy See to the Archbishop of of New Orleans. I think it was Archbishop Rommel. Nate, can you correct me on that name? Is that the the, the name, yes, the one who was? was... Yes. So it was a cable uh, sent in, I guess, um, early September 1958 to Archbishop Rommel saying that the Holy Father completely supported his desegregation efforts. And earlier, before then, there were other correspondences between Pius XII or his office, you know, and um, people in New Orleans where he was, Pius XII was aggressively supporting Archbishop Rommel's desegregation. There was a case in, uh, I think, 1957 or earlier in 1958, where a group of Catholic laity from New Orleans wrote to the Holy See, fully expecting that the Holy Father would take their side against Archbishop Rommel's desegregation and being surprised and disappointed to find that the Holy See responded with a letter saying, obey your archbishop in in desegregating the schools. Also in New Orleans, there was uh, a a white Jesuit named uh, Louis J. Toomey, who in the early civil rights era was publishing a newsletter called Christ's Blueprint for the South that was an anti-segregationist and also pro-unionized labor uh, news, newsletter. Uh, and uh, Father Toomey was actively fighting those in his own Jesuit order who were opposing desegregation, even though the Jesuit superior general had issued an order that Jesuit schools could not be segregated. There were law schools that were run by Jesuit faculties uh, that were refusing to desegregate and and other schools as, as, as well. So I'm interested in the stories of those Catholics who were doing the right thing, but it is important to note that these Catholics who were doing the right thing were often looked upon by people in power as troublemakers. And so they had to speak up to make their voices heard. Lately, I I mean, I say this because I'm looking for examples for my own life. And uh, lately, I've been quite vocal on my Twitter feed opposing racist language that's being used on EWTN and also uh, opposing the Knights of uh, Columbus for its insensitivity with regard to permitting President Trump's visit to the JP2 shrine the day after Trump ordered the, through Bill Barr, ordered the gassing of peaceful Black Lives Matter protesters outside the White House. And so, you know, when I look at my feed and I see how, you know, angry it is, I wonder, well, is this really the Catholic thing to do? And certainly we want to shed more light than heat. But then I look to people like Dorothy Day and Louis Toomey, and I see that 
they were also considered troublemakers and agitators when they were in fact stating the gospel. So, you know, my hope is to imitate them. One of one of the things that I noticed, I, I just looked up uh, 1962, April 17th, 1962, uh, New York Times, the front of the New York Times, the headline was three racists excommunicated by Louisiana Archbishop, the same Bishop Rummel, Archbishop Rummel that you that you mentioned before. And I think in a lot of ways, what we're seeing now is similar to what was seen back then, where we had some strong leaders within the church, like Archbishop Gregory and like Bishop Seitz from El Paso, who have been at the forefront of opposing racism, standing up for black lives, protesting, and sort of a populist movement that's not rooted in the gospel, but is made up of members of the Catholic Church who are resisting this leadership. Nate, what have you seen any any signs, any anything in particular within the church as this as this has been going on? What kind of things are you hearing? What has inspired you? What has encouraged you? What has uh, and and also what has been disappointing? Especially as our national conversation uh, is focused on race, and and that's meant that our church's conversation in the U.S. is also is also focused on on these issues. What what has been your reaction to all of this? I mean, that in itself is encouraging that we are focusing on race, even if for a passing moment, uh, which you know I hope it doesn't turn out to be that way. But yeah, we're talking about it. That's awesome. And thankfully, I have uh, been interacting with a certain subsection of Catholics on Twitter who are more, I guess you could say, progressive or justice-oriented in that regard, who are, for the most part, open to hearing what Black people have to say about what's going on and anyone else who's speaking the truth, and they're not dismissing it. And even in places where they don't understand or disagree, they're willing to try to move forward and and be a force for a solution rather than more division. So that's been awesome to see. And, you know, we have bishops speaking out with varying levels of fervor and I guess you could say varying commitments to the status quo. I mean, you can put out a statement and not say much at all. And some bishops I do think are doing that, but there are others who are not only making statements, but like you mentioned, bishops that are going out and on the ground and protesting even. And it's just, um, it's been, it's been cool to see in particular, the bishops who are protesting. My bishop here, like you said, Greg Amond has, uh, has organized more than one event so far to, uh, show solidarity. That's been awesome. Less awesome, though, have been things like the visit from Trump to the shrine of John Paul II and the fact that Catholic lay group allowed it. That has been not so grand, but uh, also not incredibly shocking. I mean, we all know there are wings of the Catholic Church that are not going to be friendly to this sort of movement. And, you know, unfortunately, the president found one of those groups of people and decided to collaborate. So 
there are certain things that are unavoidable in America that have always been unavoidable and moments like these, those kind of things jump out and they're given press and we have no choice but to look at them and decide what we're going to do about it, how we're going to respond to it. And I think that in itself is, is a blessing that very little can be, can stay in the shadows right now. And it's good for that stuff to come out and for us to deal with it and say, what are we and what are we going to do about it? But yeah, it's, there's just been, there's been reactions all over the board. And I think it's, for me, it's exciting just to see, just to see the possibilities. What are we going to do? Of course, it could end horribly and, you know, we go right back to where we were before or somewhere worse, but there's potential now because there is a discussion happening. There is a dialogue. There is a movement that's, that's at its, I don't know if it's at its height, but it's certainly going strong right now. People are out in the streets saying what they mean and making sure that they're going to be heard. So incredible. I think one thing that this has really brought into focus, where Peter is, we we try to stay away from specific politics, especially endorsing specific political parties or candidates or jumping on bandwagons. But one of the messages of Pope Francis's papacy has been to avoid ideologies. And one of the things that we've discussed in previous podcasts, and and we've certainly written about it at Where Peter Is, is this idea that we don't compromise our values because we want somebody to win an election. And I find that a lot of Catholics are tying themselves to the Republican Party, and for good reasons in a lot of cases. Uh, We talk about abortion, we talk about gay marriage, we talk about religious liberty, issues that the Catholic Church definitely endorses, but there are areas where the Republican Party certainly comes up short. And, And one of those areas is definitely in race relations, but also immigrants uh, in our treatment of immigrants and and welcome of immigrants, also in helping the poor, supporting education. And I think that these alliances with political parties, rather than Catholics informing the, the policy positions of their political parties, they've adopted the good and the bad from the political party that they that they choose. And one of the things that you hear a lot about is people will say, for example, well, you say black lives matter. I say all lives matter. And they get combative when they're called out on that. But one of the things that also that Pope Francis has emphasized, and this is the teaching of the church from the beginning, that he's just put an extra amount of support behind is the idea that we accompany individuals, we accompany each person. And in this particular cause, it's important that we listen to people who are part of a long oppressed and put down minority who are mistreated. Don, what are your thoughts on that? Well, thank you, Mike. Uh, Our Lord tells us to Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And right now, it's it's people from the black community in America who are weeping right now. So now is not the time to say, everybody weeps. Get over it. 
<laughs> you know, <laughs> now is the time to say black lives are weeping because they haven't been treated like they matter. And black lives do matter. I mentioned on Twitter that if I stand up and say unborn lives matter, all these pro-lifers say yes. And I have said unborn lives matter, and I do say it, and I will forever, as long as God gives me the, the grace, to, I will keep saying that. But uh, as I said, if I stand up and say black lives matter, those same people who cheered me when I said unborn lives matter will say, can't you just say all lives matter? Uh, so I think there's some hypocrisy among the abortion onlyists, those who will only speak on the topic of abortion. I think there's some hypocrisy in their believing that, well, it's necessary to speak up for this one oppressed group, but not necessary to speak up for, for the, uh, the other. And uh, we have to keep calling them on it and keep showing them uh, the path that Christ presents to us. Hmm. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I think even deeper is like Black people as part of being oppressed in this country have been a political football for some time. And I think all lives matter has nothing to do with someone's beliefs about whether or not all lives matter. It has to do with partisanism. And it, because of the way that the black community has been politicized and used by either political party and predominantly for the last several decades by the democratic party, it's gotten to the point where to say black lives matter is interpreted by Republicans to be an endorsement of a certain left-leaning or progressive worldview. And it's just something they cannot accept, such that when they see it, they almost instinctively react with something like, all lives matter, which is extremely sad. Again, it has nothing to do with their beliefs about all lives, but their beliefs about this country and about the values that they're willing to promote in relation to their preferred political party. That a people group could be reduced to that is, is incredibly sad. I, I tend to see this dismissal. For 2019 and, and part of this year, I worked for an a Catholic environmental organization. And a lot of Catholics were very resistant to our message and to that of Laudato Si, Pope Francis's encyclical on care for our common home. They seemed to think that any talk about addressing this problem immediately associated you with the far left rather than seeing that just just like Don was saying with with the Black Lives Matter website well there are a lot of non-catholic elements and yes there within the environmental movement there are a lot of parts of the secular part of the movement that do go against our faith but that doesn't mean that the problem isn't real, and the problem doesn't need to be addressed. So what Laudato Si did, and what Catholic Climate Covenant did, was to address this very real problem of the destruction of our common home, and to provide a response that was rooted in faith, in love of God, in love of neighbor, rooted in the love of God's creation. And a response to that real problem would be a Catholic response. And if Catholics are going to avoid responding to the issue of discrimination and racism 
then they're leaving that field open for people that don't share our values to address that problem. If we want to address the problem in a Catholic way, we can't ignore it. And by denying that racism is a real issue, a lot of Catholics are, are simply saying, let's let non-believers handle that. Nate, I don't know if, if, if I'm off base or if, or if that reflects what you're seeing. No, I think that's, that's a pretty accurate portrayal of things. And it does seem to stretch back in a systemic sort of way to the issues referred to earlier, where the church was just a mirror of the worst parts of the culture, of American culture, when it came to race. It was, um, people were willing to avoid doing what was right as long as it kept them safe in their preferred social groups and communities and political affiliations. They were willing to avoid addressing racism, avoid addressing segregation, avoid addressing Black people being barred from the priesthood because it kept them safe. It, pre it preserved the status quo, which is what they felt like was going to preserve the church. But in reality, anything that's harming any anyone, especially any part of the church, is definitely not for the common good. And in this case, it's not something the church can afford to be silent about, and it certainly can't afford to be speaking out wrongly about it. One of the things that's been brought up frequently about race, and I know you are a very strong pro-lifer, Don. You've been active in the pro-life issue. It's had professional consequences for you. <laughs> Anyone who's familiar with Don's biography uh, knows that people call Black Lives Matter a pro-life issue. And as Catholics, we believe in a consistent ethic of life. Do you consider this to be a pro-life issue? And, and if so, in what way? There's no question that the topic of, of, of race, the problem of, of racism and prejudice is a pro-life issue. And the Holy Father said as much in his comments on George Floyd. He said explicitly uh, that if we are to be pro-life, we can neither tolerate racial prejudice nor look the other way. I thought it was quite interesting that he said both that we can't tolerate it and that we can't look the other way, because the Holy Father knows his St. Thomas. He knows his moral theology with respect to levels of ignorance, culpable, non-culpable ignorance, and so on. And so it's one thing to consciously, actively tolerate racism. Uh, that implies that a person actually has ill will uh, against people of color and is happy to tolerate racism. But to say, as the Holy Father did in the same statement where he spoke of racism being a sin, to say that it's also wrong to look the other way is to say that we can't claim ignorance of what's before our eyes. We won't be saved. We won't be absolved of racism because we chose to ignore it. It means we have to take an active stance combating it. Okay, Nate. I wanted to talk to you about prior to becoming Catholic, prior to looking into the, the apostolic churches, and probably at the very beginning of your experience studying Catholicism, 
you at some point you discovered that there was a black Catholic tradition in the U.S. and there was black Catholic liturgy in the U.S. How did you come across it? Did it surprise you? What was your initial reaction to it? I was exhilarated. I I had gotten to the point where I was intellectually convinced of the truth of Catholicism such that I was going to convert, period, because I realized it was the church. It is the church. But I was doing it almost in a begrudging way or with a tinge of sadness, thinking that, you know, I was going to be attending the kind of Catholic church that I had been attending up until that point, that I was going to have to, you know, just deal with the fact that everything's kind of European, that the music is not going to be my, it's not going to have any connection to my culture. And that's just that. But again, because I believed it was the church, I was, I was willing to accept that. Then I discovered that within the church, they have allowed for many cultural expressions, not just that of African-Americans, but of many other cultures. And that that is almost the point of it, of the church calling itself Catholic and universal. So, yeah, it was exciting. I was so excited to just, to see it up close and personal. I'm, I'm sure I looked up so many YouTube videos after discovering that. I was just like, what could this possibly sound like? And when I saw it for myself in person, I was like, this is beautiful. And I know that I'm making the right decision by converting. And uh, yeah, it's just to know that the church has ha has been privileged to intersect with with black history in that way is is just awesome even though it took you know some time for for the church to fully answer the call to that enculturation with the african american community it happened and it's still happening and i'm excited to be a, to even be a part of it now cuz obviously the work is not done and hopefully i can contribute my little whatever, here and there for the rest of my life. It's interesting. You, you mentioned that Eurocentrism. And I, I don't know if it was, well, it definitely wasn't specific to the African-American community or, or the African-American community wasn't, wasn't the only community that felt alienated by that Eurocentric approach. The, the experience of, of music, for example, in different cultures the rigidity, and and I, I don't I don't mean to to rip apart the traditional Latin Mass totally, but there there's something about all all of the strict rubrics, and it's discouraged for any kind of emoting or any kind of, frankly, in a lot of cases, any noise from the congregation at all. Mm -hmm. um, and I believe that African Americans only make up three percent of the U.S. Church. So it's, it's a very, what's that? It's tiny, yeah. Yeah, it's tiny. And, and I don't, I think that, I mean, I've been to several African-American churches in my life. And I have to admit, the first time I went, I was, I, I was a little blown away. I mean, not, not in a bad way, because I went there because I was, I really, I, I really just wanted to, to soak in what was there. I was, I was friends with the priest and I, I knew it was going to be different, but for a lot of, especially for a lot of our, our online Catholics or our, our young traditionalists, they've been convinced that this, that a stoic solemn form of mass of, of liturgy is the only way to go. And I know that in African-American culture, African culture, Latin American culture, 
people in these cultures tend to have different ways of expressing themselves. And it's, there's not a one size fits all. Uh, what unites us is the faith, Jesus Christ, the scriptures, the Eucharist. And I know that you, you've talked about how you had a lot of, a lot of traditionalist friends when you were first exploring the church and a lot that, and you were talking about your very first experiences. What were some of the reactions you received when you introduced them to African-American Catholicism? I think a lot of them were supportive of it in theory because, you know, they're, <laughs> you can hardly be openly opposed to such a thing, like saying, oh, no, that's a bad thing. So in general, they would say, you know, it's beautiful. It's, it's cool that everyone uh, is welcome in the church because the Catholic church is truly Catholic. But on the ground, if I took them to a gospel mass, they either verbally or with their body language were definitely not comfortable with certain things that were occurring. Granted, some of the things that were occurring may not be totally in line with canon law, as you might see it in the, in the rubrics. But uh, they certainly were not comfortable with anything that they had not, with the things that they had not grown up with and with the things that they generally did not experience in their, their daily lives outside of, outside of the church. Whereas for a black Catholic, the aspects of the culture that had been brought into the mass are much the same aspects of the culture that they experience in their day-to-day -day lives. And that is why they would want to bring it into the Mass in the first place. It's because it's part of who they are. So for those for whom it is not a part of their identity, they obviously will have a hard time truly accepting it. It's probably not going to be something they want to participate in on a weekly basis, which is understandable, but especially on the first couple looks, it come, sometimes comes off as disapproval or denigration. One of the things that I noticed in particular or, or what stood out to me was there's a definitely a movement of online traditionalists who are very very strong about bringing up this clarification from the congregation of divine worship that the sign of peace should only go on for this long and no one should leave their space or countless articles on the internet about not holding hands during the Our Father and how that's wrong. And I would say that probably a good 70% of white Catholics, if not more in this country, ignore it, ignore that. But in, in the African-American experience, I mean, one thing that struck me especially was the, was the sign of peace. And I, I think this is a fairly universal thing. The, the entire choir comes down. You know, in my case, I, I stood out like a, a sore thumb, I'm sure. So people saw me as a visitor and came up and welcomed me and said, God bless you. And, and wanted, some of them wanted to give a hug and some of them were reaching across three or four rows to, to shake my hand. And the warmth and the love that I experienced, the welcome, I just felt was so strong. And I know that in typical American suburban white bread, culture, if somebody comes up to you like that, you're probably going to think they're trying to take something from you. Uh, yeah. You better be happy with the, the grimace and a wave. Yeah, exactly. Maybe if they're, they're two years old and they're leaning over a pew, you can forgive them. But um, I mean, it, it was just, I think there's that 
authentic expression that's there. And I think in a lot of ways, even in the, in the white community, our, our social convention tells us that, that we shouldn't have that. But for example, one of the things I, I recently wrote a piece on, or at the beginning of the um, pandemic, probably back in March, I wrote a piece on the sign of peace at mass. And a lot of, a lot of people were denigrating it, even though it has a very, very long tradition in the church. And, and in the early church, people understood it, or the historical understanding is that it was a full-on mouth-to-mouth kiss during mass <laughs> Wow! in the early church. Yeah. There is um, a verse that says something about we, a holy kiss. Yeah, it was this, this past Sunday's um, second reading was greet one another with a holy kiss. And it was... It wasn't a formalized like the the traditional Latin mass. They they do have the sign of peace in the in the high mass, but it's only the people in the sanctuary, only the people on the altar, and it's sort of one of those where you you, you clasp each other's shoulders and you kind of give a an air kiss on each side. Hmm. But one thing that I've I've come across a few times, single people for example, in our, in our American society, people who live alone, whose families are, are far, live far away from them or don't have, don't have family and super close friends. I've heard some comment, for example, that the Our Father and the sign of peace at Mass on Sunday is the only physical contact that they might have with another person the entire week. And I think that that greeting one another i think i think we could le- i think white catholics could definitely learn a lot from the african american community about being at home at church seeing seeing the the church as as your community rather than you know back our car in so that right after communion we can tear out of the parking lot as quickly as possible and and dodge father so he doesn't see us leave early you know um, <laughs> There's a there's an obligatory sense to it. And this is that whole heart Christian versus head Christian dynamic that I think a lot of people strictly see it as their obligation. And I don't think there's anything wrong enjoying mass on an emotional level. Yes, there's more to it than that. And traditionalists will remind you of that regularly or, or the idea that Gregorian chant appeals to the intellect and reason and other songs are pure sentimentalism and emotion. And, and I, <laughs> I don't know if you've heard that kind of rhetoric before. And there's no, definitely a lot. I, I have them blocked already. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a, um, but, but people come to the church for different reasons. And when we are part of the church, we are part of the body of Christ. Now, you're, you're an intellectual convert, but I, based on what you're saying, I'm thinking that your conversion of heart was inspired just as much, if not more, by this connectedness that you learned about and started to experience. Is that what you believe, what, you, what you've experienced? That's accurate. Yeah, I definitely read my way into the church, but I felt my way into the the Black Catholic Church such that now I, it's not that I couldn't imagine not going to a Black Catholic Church, but like it's, 
it's an extremely important aspect of my faith. And man, I I don't know where I'd where I'd be without it. It's on a uh, on a cultural level, it is a home, and within that home, you know, it feels like home, as you said. It feels like your family because they treat you like they're your family, and that's that's important to me. And generally, it is important within the Black culture because of the peculiar experiences that we've had in America. That's what the church has always been for us, and in the Black Catholic Church, it's no exception. So I want to ask you a question, and obviously you haven't been Catholic for a terribly long time, and, and during the pandemic, obviously our, our physical connection to the church is impeded, but mm-hmm. based, on, based on your conversations with other Black Catholics and with people maybe who have been part of the Catholic Church for a lot longer, priests who are either Black or who have served the Black community, what do you think they feel or what is their experience and understanding of the wider church, the wider Catholic church in connection to themselves? I mean, we talked about the liturgical rigorous and people who would be shocked and horrified at the at the music and the and the sign of peace in the black church and I feel in some ways that perhaps the black church maybe maybe feels marginalized within the within the wider church. I mean, we we posted the 1968 statement from the Black Catholic Clergy Caucus and that had some very strong language about the relationship between Catholic leadership and black Catholics. And we've also talked about low levels of Catholic vocations. I mean, the percentages of Black people in the U.S. who are Catholic is low. I would wager that the percentage of priests among American priests is even lower. Mm-hmm. Do you think there's a disconnect? I mean, I know you think there's a, I know you believe there's a disconnect. And You got me. <laughs> <laughs> what steps do you think the wider church can take, and particularly white Catholics can take, to heal that divide? I think it's going to take going out of their way. I think after 500 years-ish of going out of their way to stifle Black Catholicism or the dignity of Black Catholics in one way or another, it's going to take a solid amount of time of going out of their way to help them. I don't think that it's going to be possible to, to right the wrong or to see improvement unless they begin to treat Black people like, unless they treat, treat them in the way they should be treated after being treated a certain way for so long. Like you can't, you know, hold someone back at the starting, the starting line of a race and let everyone else go and then let that person go and expect there to be any kind of equity in the end, unless you help that person along, unless you, you know, give them a speed boost, unless you get out there and carry them on your shoulders because you're, you know, maybe bigger and stronger or faster than them, which is not to say in any way that there is actually a, an inferiority problem with Black people, but just that we're playing from behind in society and in the church, partially because of actions that the church has taken in the past. So I think they need to take reverse actions uh, in the present in order to fix what ails us 
I don't know if they're up for it, but I think that is what it will require in whatever ways they see fit. And I don't think we're seeing it right now. I think it's mostly just like we stopped doing what we were doing before. Therefore, all is well. But obviously, that's not how that's not how this works. Well, clearly, I mean, you look at the numbers, you look at the number of of black people who who are leaving the church. I mean, they warned us. Black Catholic Caucus warned us in 1968 that that the Catholic Church would cease to be uh, relevant within the black community. And and while there are strong pockets of it, and I know you're you're new to New Orleans, at least as a Catholic. And Mm -hmm. when you showed up, there was a pandemic. And I know, but there is uh, of several places in the country. D.C. is one. um, New Orleans is another. I, I believe Chicago is another. That right. that do have that do have a maybe relatively small but, but a black Catholic culture that has historical roots. It goes mm-hmm. way back. Do you see any bright lights? Right. I mean, we obviously you saw Dawn give testimony to her activity down in D.C. What's encouraging you, and and what do you think if we pushed a little bit further or, or kept it going? we might build up some some good momentum. Well, the most evident bright spot to me is that there's nothing stopping us from from doing what we got to do. It's not like it was maybe 50 or 100 years ago where there were like major impediments within and without the church to actually doing what needed to be done. Now it's just a matter of will, overcoming fear, overcoming misconceptions, and just being willing to make a sacrifice in order for, for Black people to overcome and for Black Catholics to, to overcome as well. I think it's just, will the people who have the power to make a change, get to cause systemic change, will they do so? I think we've yet to see the answer to that question, but I think another bright spot is that there are many influential voices in the culture who are Black and who are Catholic and who are speaking out, who have platforms. It's incredible to see. Don mentioned one of them, Vincent. We've got people like Vincent writing for The New Yorker, writing for major national publications who are Black and who are Catholic and who are faithful. And, I mean, that's that's part of it. That's how we got many of the gains that we have now. It's just people using their influence to to start some stuff, to start, to start saying what needs to be said to the audiences that need to hear it. And I'm grateful that we have. We still have those voices. I think we could use a little bit more cohesiveness and organization. And we have some of the organizations like National Black Catholic Congress, several black clergy and religious groups who are speaking out. I just think it would be good for us to unite more and more on that front and just use those platforms to to keep applying pressure. Very grateful to have you as a as a contributor. I think one of the things that's important is to realize that that we are a universal church. And even if we have different cultures and traditions and different forms of music within that church, we need to listen to one another and we need to grow in our understanding of each other. And so I'm, I'm very grateful for your voice. We, we've been doing everything we can to, to try to reflect this, this large church and to respect the many cultures and the many people within our church. And I, I mean, I'm grateful that we have a Pope like Francis who respects that. 
one of the last things I, I wanted to ask you, you wrote a piece talking about how the apostolic exhortation Querida Amazonia applies to the African-American culture, not just the Amazonian culture. In your piece, you, you wrote how you were encouraged by this. Cultures, especially those at the margins or that have been uh, neglected or oppressed, people come together and form bonds and develop unique cultural traditions that are based on their experience. And the people of the Amazon, especially since they're so spread apart and, and in their circumstances, they don't have access to the sacraments. And that led them to come up with their own traditions of prayer, their own traditions of worship that should be respected. And I think that definitely applies to, to black Catholics too. And I was wondering if I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that, the applicability of that document to your community. Yeah, I think due to the fact that the experience of Amazonian Catholics is that of being not just a minority, but also one that's being taken advantage of in a lot of ways, it would be hard for such a document not to speak to a community like African-Americans because it's been a long and hard road in America for African-Americans. And when the Pope speaks out in that way on behalf of those who are, are suffering in that unique way, it's just so powerful because naturally, even if he did not intend it, it uh, endorsing things like dance and uh, other aspects of <laughs> that seem to maybe be common among marginalized cultures, just an outward and free expression of joy. Like, that's awesome. It's something that you know is compatible with Catholicism, but to see it in a document in that way just gives so much life to those communities that live that kind of culture every day of their lives, just to be told that you matter and God loves you and wants every part of you in the church. That's awesome. It's just, <clears throat> it's incredible. And I'm grateful for Pope Francis for the same reasons you are. The way that the ways that the church can move forward, especially in uplifting those who are marginalized. Yeah, and giving voice to people such as myself and hopefully the many others who I will recruit to write for where Peter is and just giving us a voice that, you know, we otherwise wouldn't have. No, I guess uh, the one last thing I would like to ask you, not going to ask you, do you want me to ask you about your vocation? Sure, why not? Okay. Um, so, Nate, you've been Catholic for six or seven months now. Um, mm -hmm. You've begun to settle into this new tradition, into this looking forward. What, what are you discerning for yourself as, as you face the rest of your life as a Catholic? Mike, I want to become a priest. Really? Straightforward with that? Do you feel, do you hear a call? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I have heard the call, and I think I was probably hearing it even before I became Catholic, if that makes sense, that I was being called to to ministry that I could not put my finger on then, but now that I am Catholic and have continued to pray about it and have received multiple uh, clear signs from God, uh, I'm at the point now where well, <laughs> I've applied for the priesthood now, but a few months oh, ago, wow. I was at the point where I was like, okay, yes, this is what my life has been 
building up to up to this point, which is not to say, oh, I'm guaranteed to become a priest or to be accepted into the order I've applied for, but just that, uh, yeah, that to listen to God in that moment would be to apply for the priesthood because Lord knows we need more black priests and I am ready and willing to go. My brother is a priest, as you know, and one of the things that he was taught by his seminary rector is you may not be called to be a priest in the end, but you're called to be here right now. And all we can do is respond to Christ in the moment. So I'd ask our listeners to pray for Nate as that discernment process and that application process continues. I think you'd be a, a great gift to the church, your faithfulness, your confidence, your intelligence, and your ability to step back and analyze and reflect on, on the faith and, and the world around us is, is really strong. We could definitely use that. But yeah, no, I, I, I'm grateful for your witness. If you have any, any words of advice for other young black men who are discerning the priesthood or who think that they might have a call? I would tell them, you stand in a long line of faithful black Catholics. Do not be afraid. Thank you for listening to this edition of Petersfield Hospital. I'm Mike Lewis, and on behalf of Nate Tenner Williams and Dawn Eden Goldstein, I want to say thank you for listening. Until next time.